How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 141 of X-Lapsed, where it might be a shorter episode today, at least uh, comics content-wise. We got us one of those good news, bad news situations here uh, with this issue of Juggernaut. Uh, The good news is I enjoyed it. Uh, The bad news is there really isn't a whole heck of a lot to say about it. So uh, let's hop right into it here. This is Juggernaut, volume three, number four. Out of February 2021, cover date, this is the penultimate issue of Juggernaut. The story's called Scalpel to the Soul, written by Fabian Nicieso with art by Ron Gawney. Colors Matt Miller, letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Biso White Sapolsky, cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale December 9th of 2020. Now we open, and our purple prose opener is, uh, well, it's actually purple this time. And uh, to be fair, it's quite a less purple prosy than the first few. We open comic content with Juggernaut being dropped from a damage control chopper into Arnim Zola's base, which, if uh, we recall from last issue, is a prison where he's experimenting on superpowered inmates, or something like that. Now, D-Cell, she's still narrating or live-streaming this entire thing, and she claims that this location is an old Factor 3 base. Now, Factor 3 were a motley assortment of X-Men villains put together in the late 60s. I don't know that we've seen them since. I don't know if we've ever seen them again. I could be mistaken. Now, at this point, it's I gotta say, uh, D-Cell's narration is uh, getting just as much on Kane's nerve as it is mine. (laughs) And so uh, he asks her to kindly cut the commentary. Our hero, once inside, is then attacked by, as the cover might have suggested, Primus. And I did not know who this character was. Um, He's apparently an old Captain America villain from before I was even born. So that probably explains why. (laughs) I had no idea who he was. Anyway, he's uh, he's the stringy, goopy thing from the cover. And uh, he's described as being a shape-shifting android or something like that. Now, he and Kane, they wrestle for a bit. Uh, Primus eventually envelops Kane inside his... Nastiness, uh, kind of like we saw with uh, Gwenpool and Deadpool uh, getting stuck inside Reed Richards back in uh, one of the issues of Gwenpool Strikes Back. Now, Arnim Zola makes his appearance here, and uh, we can see that he looks quite a bit different here. He looks more like a digital being rather than having like a fleshy face in his belly. If you know Arnim Zola, he's got like a face in his belly. Here it's like a screen, like a monitor with like... Kind of like Matrixy lines, like from the, the Matrix film, you know, those weird binary stuff. It looks kind of like that, but it makes the form of a face with lines going through it. 
Now, Juggernaut asks why Zola came after D-Cell, and our Nazi mad scientist is quick to respond. You see, D-Cell is a mutant, despite whatever she might say. And since Krakoa is now its own isolated thing, mutants are much harder to come by in the rest of the world, so she is valuable. From here, we hop into Flashback Land, and Kane is is at an O-N-E storage facility. Now, O-N-E are the Office of National Emergency, and I want to say we first saw them around M-Day, after the horrendous House of M event. I think it was like a Sentinel Squad O-N-E or something like that back then. Anywho, we find out that O-N-E have in their possession some shards of Sidorak. A much welcome and somewhat surprising editor's note refers us to Uncanny X-Men number 21 for all the deets. And uh, that is the most recent Uncanny X-Men number 21, not like the three or four that came before that for those of us keeping score. And so, Juggernaut fights his way through, gets the gem bits, and appears to finally be fully repowered. Now, last issue, we saw that he got that weird harness or whatever it was from that North Korean Sidorak temple. And now, the gem. Now, back to the present. Damage Control has lost contact with the Juggernaut. And so, D-Cell decides to go all-action hero and leap from the chopper to help. She manages to slow her fall with her deceleration powers, which, yeah, that's pretty handy. It's worth noting that she monologues the entire way down, and, uh... With every voice balloon, I I think I like her just a little bit less. She lands, enters the base, which is more or less exactly what Arnim Zola hoped would happen. Now, it's not long before she's caught up in Primus's gooey phalanges and is placed on Zola's examination table. Now, our Nazi scientist informs us that in order to fully determine whether or not D-Cell is a mutant, he's going to need to carve into her head and check out her hippocampus. Which, uh... That's a new one, isn't it? You know, maybe he should just do, like, uh, the Sebastian Shaw thing. Go his route. Maybe just kill D-Cell. See if she could be resurrected. And if she can, hey, all doubts eliminated. She's definitely a mutant. Well, maybe. Maybe not. Um, Now, as this is going on, Juggernaut's eyes begin to glow bright red. This takes us back to Flashback Land, wherein a fully repowered Juggernaut is faced with Sidorak itself. And... He rejects Sidorak's control. He claims that since he got his unstoppable powers back all by his lonesome, he owes no debt to Sidorak. And so, from this point on, Kane Marco will be responsible for all of his actions, good or bad, and will not do anyone's bidding. This brings us back to the present, where Juggernaut busts out of his bindings and easily mops the floor with Primus and Zola. He finds out that, uh, well... Our big boss is in yet another castle because Zola is actually working for another. Someone who he's quite scared of, and uh, he's scared that uh, this other person will kill him if he squeals. Zola again talks about how valuable D-Cell is as a mutant, to which she, she proclaims again that she is, in fact, not a mutant. Kane vows to protect her, whatever the case, and uh, to chat up the actual big bad next issue. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, we'll be heading into the Wild Hunt with New Mutants number 14. Whatever the Wild Hunt is, I know uh, I played Witcher 3, which is called the Wild Hunt. Wild Hunt. I don't think it's that, though. So we will find out next episode. But for now, let's talk about Juggernaut number 4. And like I said at the start here, one of them good news, bad news situations here. This is 
It's a fun and enjoyable issue, but it doesn't give us a whole heck of a lot to talk about. We could talk about Juggernaut having his powers, getting his powers back his own way, right? We saw all the trials that he went through to regain his unstoppability and how it wasn't just reliant on Sidorak saying, here's a gem, now you're mine. So that's pretty cool. And I do like that Juggernaut is now uh, like fully in control of his own destiny. I think that's pretty cool, especially if we're going for the re- redemption angle, which it seems like we are. There won't be any sort of... Uh, well, I'm sure there's always going to be a fear of him turning bad again because this is comics, but less of a uh, less of a fear uh, or less of a immediate fear of Sidorak trying to get control, or maybe that'll be the next Juggernaut miniseries. Who knows? But uh, I do like how uh, Kane is now kind of just owning his actions, his behavior here. He even says it as he's walking away from Sidorak. All of my decisions, good and bad. Are all to me now So it doesn't say that he's going to be a goody-goody And like a Boy Scout or anything But if he's good, it's on him And if he's bad, well that's also on him We could talk a little bit And I mean this is something that we could probably talk about more Probably next issue I don't know what next issue is all about But I'm assuming we'll probably be touching on this there as well uh, D-Cell's deniability here She... Proclaims every single issue so far That she is not, in fact, a mutant Despite the fact that everyone else seems to think that she is Now, I like this I like this as a concept Since back in the first issue of this miniseries We found out that when her powers manifested It wound up tragically taking the lives of her parents And so, if D-Cell comes to grips And to peace, or to terms With the fact that she's a mutant well, I think she she loses a little bit of the deniability there, and she has to maybe not so much accept blame or fault, but responsibility for what happened to her parents. Right? If this is if this power is just part of her, then it's like she's you know culpable for what happened. Whereas she's trying to pass this off as being as herself being a victim of an like a science experiment gone wrong here, which. Allows her to kind of assuage herself of any sort of blame or uh, responsibility In that whoever, you know, foisted these powers upon her Is ultimately at fault for her parents' demise I like that, I think that's a really cool uh, bit to add to the story here And I'm wondering if next issue she's going to wind up coming to peace With the fact that she's a mutant Or maybe we'll find out altogether that she is in fact not or maybe it'll just be left for us to to discuss and think about. I don't know if Professor Xavier will show up in the next ep- in the next issue. He very well might. He might say, "Hey, you know, uh, we we just lost one in Franklin, and we we're gonna get one in you." So uh, we'll find out. But I do like I do like the fact that she is so steadfast in not being a mutant, and the way we can kind of wrap our heads around it and understand why she might feel that way. I think that's really really good storytelling and a neat way to introduce. A uh, new character uh, with a little bit of uh, depth Which a lot of these new characters don't get So this is a, a nice and welcome surprise uh, One more thing, the art yeah, Still killing it here, the art's very, very good I think uh, overall, if you're buying or you're keeping up with this Juggernaut series Or just checking it out on Marvel Unlimited if it's up there I don't think you'll be disappointed I think you're going to have a good time with it I know I am, and I wasn't expecting to I really wasn't expecting to When we when we covered the first issue 
Um, and I was going to, you know, put it to a vote and say, you know, who wants me to continue this? I was kind of hoping nobody would want me to. Uh, this is before I read the first issue, of course. I was just like, I don't know if we can do five issues of Juggernaut. After reading the first issue and actually liking it quite a bit, I was pleased that everyone else uh, was fond of it as well and wanted to see coverage continue here. So I'm happy that we're working through this one. And uh, we are just about through with it. So uh, soon enough, we will wrap up this miniseries. But those are my thoughts for Juggernaut number four. Now, we're going to hop into the mailbag here, and we're going to start with a very, very important letter here from our friend Damien, who is uh, talking about Fantastic Four number 26 and is doing so from a totally different point of view than uh, what I usually approach these comics with. I complained about Fantastic Four 26, right? We know that. I complained. I said it was lazy. I said the demutinifying of Franklin was... It felt like a, an editorial fiat. It was, again, lazy. It was poorly done. And my complaints stem from a place of like, hey, you're messing with my comics. Now, Damien comes at this from a different place, but a very important place and a place that I am so pleased that he is bringing to my and our attention here because these are things I never thought about. And I'm almost ashamed to say that because... As I was reading Damien's letter here, the parallels were um, completely obvious uh, and should have been obvious to me from the start. And I feel like maybe I did coverage of this issue a bit of a disservice in not addressing these things, but I just didn't think of them. I mean, that's no excuse. But uh, I want to share this letter that Damien wrote with you all because it's very, very important. It's very eye-opening to uh, to me personally and, and maybe some of you as well. So I'm going to get right into it here. Damien starts with, This issue of Fantastic Four, again, this is Fantastic Four 26, made me really angry. More specifically, one page of this issue made me furious. We all know that being a mutant has frequently been a metaphor or allegory for being a member of an oppressed group. Starting with allusions to anti-Semitism and the Red Scare, moving through the civil rights movement and feminism into becoming an allegory for being LGBT. The recent X-Men Fantastic Four series really lent into the LGBT interpretation of mutanthood. Chip Zarsky was clearly referencing conversion therapy and the push and pull between family and identity in his storyline. Ultimately, we got a happy ending where Franklin was able to be full mutant and a full part of his family. Reed and Sue realized that Franklin could have a life apart from their experience without any loss to the family. I'm going to stop right there because I tell you, we read X-Men Fantastic Four probably a few months ago on the show, and I didn't see any of that. But in reflection, it totally is. It's totally there, and I should have seen that. Uh, And I feel kind of like a fool for not seeing that. Damien continues, When we were reading that series, these parallels were not lost on me, and I know a lot of LGBT plus people felt the same. I read a very moving article by a trans woman who was greatly affected by this story. Unfortunately, I can't remember where. I also saw Chip Zarsky reference in an interview that he was intentionally referencing LGBT family dynamics, and Marvel Editorial must have been aware of the response to this series. Okay, I want to pause there as well here, because I mentioned the way I viewed this, right? I complained about this as a petulant comic book fan, so when I saw the scene 
in Fantastic Four 26. And uh, I just thought about how all those stories that I grew up reading were not going to be, weren't going to be the same. I could no longer, you know, do my, you know, the 12 fan fiction, you know, that story that I over-romanticize, uh, that concept, I should say, that I over-romanticize from the 80s, um, where Franklin Richard was supposed to play a pretty big role in that. And also, I thought, you know, we read that X-Men Fantastic Four series, and uh, I felt like we wasted our time, you know, doing so, which... In light of everything that Damien's going to say here is incredibly shallow <laughs> that I was worried about comic book things and not really uh, thinking about how a story would affect someone in their real life, how a story might make someone feel uh, more accepted or more at peace or conversely neglected and oppressed. Um, which makes me feel incredibly shallow here, but it's just another reason why I'm so happy that Damien is sharing his thoughts with us about this issue, because I feel like I'm getting a much-needed education here. So I'm going to just continue with Damien's piece here. He says, Then they do this. An all-but-omnipotent patriarch tells Franklin that he was faking it all the time. LGBT people go through their lives with people constantly telling them that they are not who they are. Just yesterday, I was talking to someone on the bus about the COVID vaccine, and I mentioned that I had no side effects, but that my husband had a fever for a few hours. She felt it was appropriate to say that I should try getting with a woman and that she would pray for me. This was some random woman who I faintly knew because she sometimes comes into the shop I work in and she feels she has a right to question the legitimacy of my marriage. This is a relatively common experience and I live in London where people are generally more socially liberal than many parts of the world. Well, first of all, that really sucks that someone would feel they could say that to you. That is, uh, that's bullshit. Uh, that someone would think they could say that to you. That's just the worst. Let's go to your first point here, though, because I think what you said here is very, very powerful. Someone tells Franklin he was faking it the whole time. And uh, I, I think we've all heard of maybe family members or friends or just acquaintances who will tell LGBT people that uh, they that they have a lifestyle or, or that they're they're living their, their lives based upon a choice, which is enough to say that they could choose not to, right? And uh, just as Damien had the encounter on the bus here where someone's like, eh, you should try. I, I mean, how? <laughs> it's, I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. That is, <sighs> yeah. Um, I'm going to continue with Damien's letter here. He says, imagine being someone who is relatively isolated who has taken joy and hope from Franklin's story. How are they going to feel now? Marvel Comics is standing with all the people who tell us that it's just our imagination. I'm sure this was not the intention. It'll be something ridiculous to do with the Marvel Universe where they don't want Franklin to be an X-Man character and they want to keep him affiliated with the Fantastic Four, probably somehow movie-related, but they should have realized how this page links to the previous storyline that was very recent. It's a sign of the lack of diversity at Marvel that no one was able to notice how bad this would play with the LGBT audience. And I will admit that I never put two and two together either. Um, you would think, with the way Marvel uh, 
you know, projects themselves that they would have put a little bit more thought into this here. I mean, I, I keep I keep wanting to go back to what you said earlier about Franklin being told he was faking it. Franklin was, you know, he was choosing the mutant lifestyle instead of just being a mutant. That's a very powerful line. And especially going back to trying to live in both worlds here, being being a member of his family and also a mutant and being pulled in different directions and having influences on both sides here and just being very, very confused. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm kind of ashamed that I didn't put these pieces together myself. But uh, you would think that Marvel would... You would think they would think, you know? And uh, like you said here, it was probably not the intention. It was. I'm, I'm almost positive it wasn't the intention. It was just something... I think they saw Franklin uh, being a mutant as a as a comics problem that they needed to solve for some reason right after we have this X-Men plus Fantastic Four story. I don't know what Dan Slott and Tom Brevoort do or think, but uh, it is, it's a bad look. It's a bad look inside and outside of the comics uh, bubble, right? Uh, Damien continues. Of course, when something is bad, we can always rely on Dan Slott to make it worse. On the day this comic was released, fans tweeted about the unfortunate consequences of this story, and Dan Slott insulted them publicly. Hmm, Dan Slott. I do not think he wrote that page in order to be homophobic or transphobic, but he could have held his hands up, explained that it was unintentional, and even crowdsourced ways of mitigating the error. Instead, he chose to insult fans. In particular, he chose to insult marginalized fans who are often abused by other fans. <sighs> you know, um, and I've, I've talked about um, comics pros on social media and stuff like that and how little I care for that and how clo- we're way too close to these people now. I don't know, and Dan Slott is, is an odd duck uh, altogether all here. Um, he is, uh, he doubles down a lot, you know, when he does something that e- even in this case um, inadvertently offends or marginalizes folks, um, he will always double down. He'll never, <laughs> he'll, he'll never say he's sorry. Um, I was going to try to do some research on this and see see some of what Dan Slott said, but I don't think I have to. I don't think that would be helping anyone if I were to share what Dan Slott said here, and I don't think it would help me to know what Dan Slott said here. Just knowing that he dismissed and insulted people who showed a little bit of concern about perhaps their own representation or representation of those they care about and love and to be slighted by the person who, uh, I mean, we're, we're paying his salary. Well, I'm not, but a lot of people are. But uh, not a good look. Very, very tone deaf. Um, Damien continues, And so I'm angry. Angry that it's still acceptable to drown out LGBT voices. Angry that our bad experiences are mined for story material when it suits them, but dropped without a thought. Angry at the toxicity of much of online comics fandom. 
and I'm angry that I will never be able to reread any of my old Dan Slott comics without being aware that he is a monumental dick who thinks people like me are beneath him. As Jack Kirby famously said, comics will break your heart. <sighs> yeah, um, powerful letter. Uh, thank you so much for sharing these thoughts with us, Damien, because this is stuff that I'm ignorant to. This is stuff that I... I, I stay off social media, first of all, um, and I am not uh, part of a marginalized group in any real way. Um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of folks were like kind of flipping their minds when Marvel started um, replacing their legacy heroes briefly uh, around the middle of the decade. You know, we had uh, the Falcon as Captain America. Uh, Jane Foster as Thor, Riri Williams as Iron Man, um, and a lot of older fans um, of a certain persuasion were uh, declaring this to be an attack on the straight white man. And I think it's more a case of Marvel overcorrecting and overcorrecting all at once. I never thought that uh, I was a victim of that. And, and I mean, uh, sane people shouldn't <laughs> think that. Um, all I thought was, wow, they're doing a disservice to all the the minorities that they're trying to reach out to here by doing this all at once. So none of it feels special. All of it feels manufactured. It feels like an agenda rather than an actual olive branch to people here. So I, I never had to deal with something like this, and I apologize that you do and, and others do as well. Uh, not that you know my apology carries any weight, but... This was so eye-opening to me, and uh, it really, really means a lot that you would uh, that you would reach deep and, and share this with us. Because, I mean, that just sucks. That really sucks here. And again, I you know I don't think Marvel did this intentionally. I don't think they were making any sort of statement here. But very tone deaf move, and uh, and equally, if not more tone deaf response to uh, the clapback here. Uh, Someone needs to take Dan Slott's uh, Twitter away from him, or just get him off the internet. You know, buy him, uh, buy him like tickets to Disney or something. Send him, send him on a vacation. <laughs> he needs to get some sun. But uh, again, uh, thank you so so much for sharing that here. Um, it really means a lot that you would share this and give me the opportunity to share this with uh, with the great listeners. So thank you. Um, next. We're going to go over to Evan, who's talking about Juggernaut number three. Actually, we have two pieces from Evan here. First one is Juggernaut number three. He says, As I listened to your recap, I briefly wondered why Kane wasn't being represented by one of the premier superhuman lawyers out there, Matt Murdock or Jennifer Walters. But Daredevil isn't lawyering these days, and She-Hulk is a bit more savage and a full-time Avenger, so kudos to Nisiesa and Editorial for maintaining continuity over a low-hanging fruit cameo. Very true, very true, because I was surprised to see, oh boy, who was it? I don't remember the name. It was it was someone who, I actually looked them up on the Marvel Wiki, and I think they were a side character in, like, Bronze Age Captain America who mentioned they were going to be a lawyer, like, in one issue, you know, and uh, Nisiesa pulled it back. If I'm remembering right, I could be remembering, I could be a little bit off here, but... I thought that was pretty cool as well. 
Evan continues, On a related note, the Marvel Universe apparently needs more superhuman law specialists. Glad you stuck with this series. As tired as I am of bad guys going good just because, I enjoy a story exploring how difficult that transition can be. Well, I'm glad we stuck to it as well. And, uh, yeah, the uh, superhuman law is strange here. We don't know what the statute of limitations are. Um... (laughs) That issue of uh, Amazing Spider-Man What did I say? It was uh, That could have been like six days or six hundred years ago We don't know which Somewhere in there for sure uh, I definitely appreciate the transition as well here um, We talked about it a bit today Where He's taking responsibility for all of his actions Good and bad um, And that, that says a lot about The mature maturation of his character here He's not scapegoating Sidorak He's He's doing whatever he can to be as best he can the the way he knows how. So I mean, he's not going to be he's not going to be swinging through the streets of New York with you know snappy banter, you know, catching muggers. He's going to do what he does here. Uh, we see that he's working for damage control, so he does need to make a living, you know. So this is not like an intrinsic good. This is being as good as he can be. So and I like that because it's it's deeper. You know, than just the, okay, I'm suddenly a good guy This is, he wasn't snapped by that Axis thing that happened a few years ago And it's like, oh, I'm good now And I will always be good And I'm gonna help old ladies across the street and stuff like that Uh, Though, it wouldn't surprise me to see an entire issue Dedicated to Juggernaut uh, escorting an old lady across the street Uh, Evan also sent in some feedback on some feedback Where he thanks our friend Damien uh, for some context He says, thanks to Damien for helping me understand, finally, how the big picture of Saturnine's machinations fit with the sword tournament. I got the shattered part of the spell, but it never clicked with me that the tournament provided the necessary crisis to make the other elements work. I can't totally blame the writers for that. Maybe it was obvious to everyone else, too. It was not. (laughs) I didn't know either. So I can thank Damien as well for helping me with the context there, because... I thought we were just doing like hoop-de-doos for no reason here And uh, just eating up pages But, yes, there was a reason for everything Everything happened because it had to happen for uh, for Saturnine's uh, deal here And for her ultimate goal uh, Evan continues Also, with the benefit of hindsight, I'd like to amend my, a previous statement The real sword was the Charnel House space station we found along the way And it was, and is <laughs> Thank you so much there, uh, Evan Thank you for your thoughts on Juggernaut 3 And also thank you for uh, feeding back on the feedback I love it when that happens I, I really I really dig it when we're all talking to each other It really means a lot to me It, uh, it tickles me So thank you for that And again, thank you Damien for your very, very thoughtful letter I, It really, again, means a lot that you would share that with uh, with the show here But that'll do it for the mailbag today um, If anybody would like to... Uh, to check in and say hi and uh, share your thoughts, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, also xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and you can check out all the Chris and Reggie stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again 
real soon. See ya.